Tonight, the desperate battle to contain California's historic fires is now a race against time. In recent years, California has experienced a series of devastating and dangerous wildfires. They've destroyed homes and smothered cities, including Los Angeles and San Francisco, in smoke. Air quality readings deemed very unhealthy, even hazardous, are plaguing major metropolitan areas like San Francisco, 170 miles south of the devastating campfire. Today, Californians, like many people around the world, are trying to adapt to a new fire reality. But the state has been living with fire for millennia. And now new research into a decades-old mystery about an extinction event at the end of the Ice Age is providing some worrying lessons from history about the way humans, fire and ecosystems interact. I'm Gemma Ware and this is The Conversation Weekly, The World Explained by Experts. Let's jump straight in. We're going to take you to a park in the heart of what is now Los Angeles. La Brea Tar Pits is a really unique site. It's actually one of the most important fossil localities in the world, and it happens to be in the middle of the second largest city in the United States. This is Emily Lindsay. She's a paleoecologist teaching at the University of California, Los Angeles, and an associate curator at the La Brea Tar Pits. We share the park with two other museums. We have major streets running by us. There's lawns, there's soccer classes, there's joggers, there's dog walkers. But if you were to walk through this area 15,000 years ago, it would have looked a lot different. You would have had a landscape of juniper trees and stream courses. You would have had huge animals wandering through the park, things like mammoths and giant ground sloths the size of hippopotamuses. You would have had camels and horses, giant bison, giant bears, American lions, which were far bigger than any modern cat. They would have come up to my shoulder walking around. Saber-toothed cats that were probably traveling around in social groups, along with huge packs of dire wolves. The La Brea Tar Pits sit atop a natural oil reserve, and regular earthquakes in Southern California have opened up fissures in the ground, bringing some of that oil up to the surface. And when the lighter components of that oil, kerosene and gasoline and such, evaporate, what's left is this very, very sticky, unique substance called asphalt, or colloquially called tar. And that forms these puddles on the ground around our park. And over the last 60,000 years, these pools of tar have been trapping animals and plants and preserving those remains so that what we have here in mid-city Los Angeles is basically a record of an entire Ice Age ecosystem moving through time across the last 60,000 years of Earth's history. The first documented fossil discovery at the La Brea Tar Pits was in 1901. Since then, scientists have collected more than 5 million fossils at the site, everything from juniper berries and beetle wings, all the way up to mammoths and saber-toothed cats. This sticky site has given scientists unique insights into what life looked like during the Ice Age, a period also known as the Pleistocene. 
When we think about the Ice Age, I think what most people think about are large animals, the woolly mammoths that you Mm. see up in the north. And in Europe, you had woolly rhinos. In South America, you had giant sloths and giant armadillos. In Australia, you had giant wombats. So there were big animals everywhere. And the basically ice-free continents looked a lot like what you think of when you think of the modern African savanna today. You just had a lot of large mammals in every ecosystem. And what's unique about the Ice Age is that at the very end of it, after more than 50 million years of having big animals in all global ecosystems, most of those animals went extinct, most of the big ones. Emily says that scientists have been debating the cause of this mass extinction ever since it was discovered more than 70 years ago. The reason it's been really difficult to come to a conclusion is that the extinctions happened very rapidly, and there were two things that were happening simultaneously. One was we were coming out of the last glacial maximum, so we see a lot of rapid climate changes and impacts on vegetation communities and ecosystems. And the other thing that's happening is we have the rapid rise and spread of human populations around the globe. And you see humans arriving on a lot of different continents for the first time. So of course, modern humans evolved in Africa, but they first start showing up in North and South America probably around 15,000 years ago, maybe a little bit earlier. And so our record of this extinction event and the exact timing of the disappearance of different species in different regions hasn't been able to keep up with the rapidity of these two events. But by using the extensive fossil records at the La Brea Tar Pits, Emily and her team were in a unique position to identify more precisely when the extinction of big mammals in Southern California actually took place. The resolution on our dates is plus or minus 30 years. And what we found was of the seven extinct species we looked at, five of them, their last dates are almost contemporaneous, right around 13,000 years ago. So this is one of the first times where in any global region, we've been able to really pinpoint the timing of the extinction. And then that allows us to go out and start looking at what might be causing it. Okay, so it's a bit like a detective approaching a case. You've got all these different suspects and you kind of really need to unpick who's the main one and different culprits. So how did you go about trying to find the answer to this conundrum? So, okay, we know when animals in this region, in Southern California, are gone. And so what's going on in this region at that time? And for that, we had to reach out to colleagues. So we brought in some local researchers who have been studying a lake core. So this is this long column of sediment from a nearby lake that contains incredible records of paleoclimate and vegetation and fire. And we asked them to join us in trying to line up what events they were seeing in terms of climate and ecosystem with the record of extinction that we had. And then we also reached out to colleagues who are archaeologists and asked them to help us figure out what was going on with human populations in Southern California and North America more broadly at that time. 
So you've got all these different factors. You've got sediment and plants and your, your fossils and you're looking at where humans fit into this puzzle. So what did you find? What's new about what you've now discovered? So what we discovered is that in the 2000 years leading up to this extinction event, the climate in Southern California was warming rapidly. The world is getting warmer as it's going through these natural glacial interglacial cycles. And here in this region, the environment is warming and it's drying out. So we see evidence of trees disappearing and the landscape becoming more open. We have a period of droughts that are lasting for decades. And then we see a significant rise in temperature. Temperatures go up about five degrees Celsius in a thousand years, which is only one-tenth of the rate of warming that we're seeing today. But in terms of natural ecosystem variation, it's very rapid. The rising temperatures and droughts led to a reduction in herbivore populations. Now, these herbivores are the ones who would normally have been eating the vegetation, clearing plant life from the landscape. Without so many of them around, there was an excess of dry plant material across the area. And then about 200 years before the big animals started to go extinct, something very unusual happened. Everything catches on fire, and we have a period of fire that lasts for about 400 years. So what this looks like in the sediment core is that suddenly there's a lot of charcoal in the record, in a record that for the previous 20,000 years has had little to no charcoal. At the end of this time, we're in a completely new ecosystem. The modern fire-adapted chaparral floral community here in Southern California has assembled and all of the big megafauna are gone. And just so I can understand what you've uncovered in Southern California and this extinction of the big megafauna, was it that they were dying in the fires or was it that their food sources were gradually shifting and therefore that's what led them to die out? Probably a combination of both. You know, we have modern analogs that we can look to, unfortunately. So if you think about the massive wildfires that we saw in Australia a couple of years ago, there's been estimates that 3 billion, with a B, animals were either killed or harmed in these fires. And that was in a very short period of time just from the fires themselves. Hmm. But fires have impacts on ecosystems far beyond just killing plants and animals. You know, you're losing food sources, you're losing shelter, you're losing uh, shade, you're losing things that are impacting water cycles, you have massive denudation of the landscape, and you can have mudslides and landslides and erosion following that. You're changing stream flow, you're changing water quality, uh, you're maybe changing nutrient cycling. So fire really is, it's a very powerful tool. And it has the potential to really permanently transform landscapes. After so many years of scientific debate, the fossil evidence led Emily and her team to conclude that fire was the principal reason for this mass extinction at the end of the Pleistocene in Southern California. And then, of course, they started to think about what actually caused the fires. The catalyst for the fires was probably human ignition sources of these fires. 
And so how do you know that? Because it, it could be that these fires were naturally caused wildfires. So how do you know that it's humans that caused the wildfires? So there's a couple of lines of evidence that led us to conclude that humans were probably the ignition source for these fires. First of all, for the previous 20,000 years leading up to this event, even during times of similar warming and a 2,000 year long mega drought, we saw very little increase in fire. Another line of evidence is that even today, there is very little naturally occurring fire in coastal Southern California. We just don't get regular lightning strikes. A recent study showed that between 1919 and 2016, more than 90% of wildfires in California were ignited by humans. Downed power lines or vehicles or campfires getting out of control. So there just doesn't seem to be a history of naturally ignited fires in this system. And it looks like going back into the past, that was true as well. The other thing is that what our archaeologist colleagues were able to determine was that the timing of the increase in wildfire and megafaunal extinction coincided with an inflection point where human populations in North America started to rise pretty rapidly. So you see an increase in humans and a sudden tipping point where suddenly there's massive widespread wildfire activity in a region that has never had it before. So what you're saying is that there are lots of factors going on. There was this decades-long drought, the glaciers kind of falling away, but actually it was wildfires started by humans that somehow caused this extinction. In this region. So I want to be cautious to say we're not saying that, you know, human-caused wildfires were the global cause of this extinction, which was a really a global event everywhere outside of Africa. You see this happening, it's happening at different times. We do think there's evidence that Fire, and specifically human-ignited and human-managed fire, was a component in other ecosystems. There are other parts of the world, especially Mediterranean ecosystems, without regular naturally occurring fire, where you see fires happening around this time or around the time of human arrival, places in South America, places in Australia. So we do think it's worth looking at and trying to get better records of the extinction event in some of these other regions and see if what we see happening here in Southern California might be true in other places. That being said, all extinctions are regional. And so you really have to look at what's going on in each particular ecosystem as you're going through this intense period of global change, rapid climate warming and rapidly expanding human populations to understand how these two factors might be impacting species in each of these locations. Mm. And in the way that you've talked about your research, you've drawn some parallels between the fires 13,000 years ago and the fires that you're experiencing now in California for the last kind of 10, 20 years. Tell me whether you see direct correlations between that, or is it more of a kind of indirect comparison? Yeah, it's it's eerily similar. Hmm. And are there any solutions or, or ideas we can take from what you've learned about the end of the Ice Age to what you might hope could happen in Southern California now to stop these wildfires becoming another extinction event. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a real warning to be taken, which is that these processes, which maybe 
you think of as more gradual processes, oh, it's a little bit worse. Uh, there's a little bit more fire. It's a little bit hotter. There's you know a few more people on the landscape. They can actually push an ecosystem to what's called a tipping point, where you go from having one type of world that you're living in to a completely different type of world very rapidly. That being said, I think recognizing the causes of this event can be really informative for land managers and politicians and individuals that are trying to prevent these sorts of devastating impacts that we see happening today. So if we can really redouble our efforts to prevent human-caused ignition sources, like by burying power lines and by having very strict fire controls and limiting where we're having human activities, that's a way to really limit the number of fires that are occurring because we're not getting these fires from lightning strikes very frequently. They're almost always from from human actions. One of the most surprising take-homes for me from this study was the realization that what we consider to be the native California ecosystem or the natural ecosystem here is an ecosystem that was in effect created by human activities. And I think traditionally in conservation science, when people talk about conserving ecosystems, the idea is, oh, well, we have to get all the people out of it. And if you just keep people out of the ecosystems, it will be natural and it will thrive and do its thing. But I think at least for the region here, that's not the case because the California fire adapted ecosystem, the chaparral, It appears to be an ecosystem that was actually created by humans and was probably actively managed by humans for more than 10,000 years. And so if we're thinking about how are we going to conserve the native ecosystem here, we really need to consider the role that human activities had in creating and managing that ecosystem. And that may really have important implications for how we end up managing that landscape to be healthy and productive going into the future. Amazing. Thank you so much, Emily, for sharing your research with us and good luck digging through those tar pits in the future. Thank you so much for having me. After my chat with Emily Lindsay, I wanted to find out more about the current fire situation in North America and California in particular. So I called up Stacey Morford. She's the environment and climate editor for The Conversation, and she's based in the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Hi, Stacey. Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. Hi, thank you so much for bringing me in. How has the fire season in California been this year? So that that depends on where you live. Um, Overall, 2023 has been a pretty quiet fire season for most of the U.S. Total area burned has been about a quarter of what we saw in 2020, and that was a bad fire year. Uh, We may have El Nino to thank for some of that this year. Um, The year was wetter and cooler across a large part of the western U.S., including California. However, north of California, Oregon and Washington are both still in drought, and they had some pretty bad fires this year. The big fire disaster that was in Canada. Hmm. What about the past decade? How common have wildfires become and are they becoming more destructive? Yeah, so wildfires are pretty common in California in particular, and particularly during hot, dry, windy summer and fall months. So these hot, dry conditions, the atmosphere sucks the moisture right out of the grasses and the brush. 
and that leaves it ready to burn. And so all it really takes is a spark. Sometimes that's lightning. In the U.S., the majority of fires are now sparked by human activities. It could be as simple as a lawnmower striking a rock. That happened in my neighborhood a year or two ago. Hmm. And it just sets off sparks to catch the dry grasses on fire. And on a windy day, that fire can quickly spread. Um, power lines and other electrical equipment have sparked some of the deadliest fires in California's history. So you asked if they are becoming more destructive. Um, the area of burning in the western U.S. has been trending upward particularly since around 2000. But it's important to remember, though, that fires are a natural part of the landscape in the western U.S. So low-grade fires can help clear out the dry brush and debris on the forest floor. And some tree species like lodgepole pines, they even rely on fires to open their seed pods. So fire is important, but three things have really changed over the past centuries. So first, There was a really catastrophic fire in the U.S. in 1910. And after that, the Forest Service started trying to put out all the fires quickly. And without those small fires, you have debris that builds up. And that provides more fuel for more catastrophic burns. Second, we have more people moving into the wildland areas. So there are more opportunities to spark a fire. Sometimes that's cars, sometimes it's power lines. And, you know, today humans cause about 85% of the wildfires in the U.S. West. Third, temperatures are rising, and we're seeing more hot, dry weather that dries out those grasses and forests, and that provides fuel that can quickly burn. Hmm. So we've just heard from Emily Lindsay about her research suggesting that even back in the Ice Age, it was human-ignited fires that caused a mass extinction event in California. So do we know what's causing kind of the increasing burden of fires in California now, today? Yeah, so when Dr. Lindsay talked about rapid warming, she's referring to changes over thousands of years. But the warming we're seeing today has shot upward in the past hundred years. And that's a blink of an eye in comparison. And you know, this is coming from burning fossil fuels and cars and power plants and all of that. And it's raising global temperatures. And in the Western US, that dries out the landscape and it leaves things ready to burn. Mm. A lot of climate change research is actually about projections for what might happen, about how bad it could get. But how important do you think that understanding the past in the way that Emily Lindsay and her colleagues have done is when it comes to understanding where our planet might actually be heading as well? Yeah, so understanding the past is really crucial for gauging the risks ahead. Um, Scientists use evidence from the past and an understanding of the atmosphere and physics to build computer models of the climate. And then they can use those models to test what might happen in different situations. So what would happen if, say, average temperatures rose two degrees? What would that mean for drought, for extreme weather in different parts of the world? How would it change the monsoons in India or wildfire risks in the western U.S.? So if people know the risks, they can figure out how to reduce those risks. And unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of those projections play out in pretty horrific fire seasons around the world right now. Just in the last few years, we've seen them in Greece and Australia, in the U.S., Russia, and now in Canada. Um, And the results destroy lives and everyone ends up paying for the damage. Mm. Well, so it's all the more important that this kind of research continues and we still understand the past to help us understand what could come. So thank you very much, Stacey, for giving us some insights into that. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Emily Lindsay at the University of California, Los Angeles, and to Stacey Morford at The Conversation in the US. 
We'll put a link to an article that Emily and her colleagues wrote about their research in our show notes, along with some other links to recent articles about wildfires. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was written and produced by Katie Flood and me, Gemma Ware, with assistance from our producer, Mend Marawani. I'm also the show's executive producer. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Saal. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor, Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. You can connect with us on Instagram at theconversation.com, on X, formerly known as Twitter, at TC underscore audio, or email us directly at podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and The Conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. And please do give us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really does help. Thanks very much for listening and we'll be back next week. Thank you.